just thinking out loud. We were the chosen soldiers, a part of a large army, marching out together to save those in the world. Our job was life-saving and so critical. I was born for this mission, and I was trained as early as I could talk through becoming a publisher, then a baptized person, then a pioneer. There was a camaraderie and a sense of urgency. I had an army of angels behind me, and my mission was of the highest order. For the Almighty Being, the most powerful. And then, I quit. I turned in my badge and my uniform. I walked off the job. In fact, I found out the job was a hoax. It was all fake. There was no apocalypse coming. And my marching had been repetitive and in vain. My training had been simply training walking and walking for hours on end to a place that no one would find. I turned away from my comrades. They kept marching on, oblivious. They watched me walk away and denounced me. They told me I was wrong, that I would regret it. Now, I'm alone. The army is long gone. I can't even see the dust their footsteps raised. It's still, and it's quiet. I look around and I ask myself, what is it that I do now? What is my purpose? <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Osland, and this is episode 579, Renee and the J-Dubs. Now, this is an episode that was recorded a couple of months ago. It's taken me a while to get to it and edit it. You'll hear that. But what you're going to hear today is a story about what many would designate as a cult. Now, the story starts in Australia. It moves to Italy to get away from this cult. And then it escapes on a midnight train to Holland and eventually finds its way back to Australia, safe and sound, back where it started with the cult. Now this is the story of Rene Kordeshi, who wrote what you just heard in that introduction. Now as a Jehovah's Witness, Rene believed that all of her non-Jehovah's Witnesses friends and neighbors would soon be destroyed in the great end time apocalypse, and she would be able to move into their empty houses and enjoy all the stuff they left behind. Now, there's a lot more to this conversation than that. It's a fascinating story with many parallels to Mormonism. And I really appreciate Renee for her bravery in sharing all of this and all of the activist work that she's doing. You'll hear about that in the discussion. And I'm also happy to be joined by street epistemologist extraordinaire Anthony Magnabosco and fellow infant Tom Perry. So let's get right to Renee's story, the story of someone that was involved in a cult. Hmm. 
Imagine that. But let's listen to the story now. We desire all to receive it. What time is it there, uh, Renee? Oh, it's 10 a.m. 10 a.m. Oh, okay. Roughly, yeah. Sorry, 10 a.m. for her? If you have any suggestions about how to loosen up a bit, <laughs> I'm very nervous. Oh, oh don't be nervous? nervous at all. Yeah, it's my first podcast ever, so. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember I was pretty nervous on my first one. Yeah. I'm sure but, Glenn was a bundle of nerves on his. I was. Well, yeah, I, I, I was kind of starstruck because the people that I was talking to were people that I had listened to for months on this podcast. And then they, they interviewed me. And, and actually, Tom, who's going to be joining, was one of the people that was on that original podcast that I just thought, oh, wow, I'm talking <laughs> to Bob Perry. Yeah. yeah. But uh, so, so let's, let's start. I'm going to pull up the... Uh, the screen here. Maybe what we could do is, is uh, Renee, just give a little bit of, of background, who you are, why we're talking, where you live, that sort of thing. Okay, so my name is Renee, and I, with all my uh, online things, I go by my maiden name, Renee Cordeski, so I post all my things through that name. Um, I was uh, an, a Jehovah's Witness once upon a time, and um, basically I became a witness because my parents were well, my mother was a witness and my father wasn't. And um, so I grew up in a beautiful medieval picturesque village in Italy. And, really? But, yeah, but in impoverished conditions. Oh. Um, so my parents really struggled um, and then the religion was just an extra thing to make life really difficult and cause a lot of arguments. So it was actually... <laughs> <laughs> A rough upbringing in the sense that the parents weren't settled and, um, yeah, that's basically um, where I grew up. And then... Um, uh, can I ask a question about that? Were, were, yeah, were you um, uh, born in, into it or did your mom join uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses when you were a child? So um, my mom joined when my eldest brother was two. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I came into it along, we were 10 years into it. She was 10 years into it. Oh, okay. And, uh, she was very devoted, so much so that my dad, who's Italian, decided to uh, take her away from the JW community and take us to Italy as a way to get away. That's how I understand the situation on reflection. Mm-hmm. But, of course, when she came to Italy, she spent about two weeks and found the witnesses again. So um, she was right back into it as soon as she got there. Okay. To his horror. All right. Well, well, Tom just joined. So, Tom, say hello to uh, to, to Renee and Anthony. Did, did you did you talk with Anthony, hey, Tom? Tom. I don't think so, but Anthony, Renee, howdy, nice to meet you guys. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Hi, Tom. So, Renee was just telling us a little bit about her background. That um, she she was born into the Jehovah's Witnesses. Her mom was an active witness. Her dad was not, and trying to get her away from it. Even even going like moving from Australia to to Italy, back to his hometown, back to his home village. Yeah, so he mm. had you know he had family there, but um, he tricked her into thinking that we were going on a holiday. And when we got there, he hid our passports apparently. So we were there for nine a nine year holiday. Wow, <laughs> yeah. that's a pretty nice long holiday. So um, after that time, I'll just keep going. After that time. Um, they they got uh, my father got extremely violent. He, mm. His frustration got so um, so desperate 
they became very violent and as a result we had to, um, in order to save our lives one night, we had to escape. And um, within a couple of weeks, mum, within a couple of months, sorry, mum managed to get support from the witnesses and they paid for us, not paid for us, but helped us find a means to escape Italy overnight on a train to Holland. Wow. And then once we got to Holland, uh, my mum's Dutch, um, her mum helped us finance to come back all the way out of Australia, where we originally began. So we had a home here already. So we, um, yeah, we absconded overnight. And how, we old, how old were you on the midnight train to Holland? Uh, 11. I had 11. Wow. myself and my 15-year-old brother. And the other massive reason why Dad got extremely desperate is because my two elder brothers who were in their early 20s had gone to Rome, Bethel, and volunteered their lives to the organisation. So he had plans that they would start a business, you know, and be successful, you know, businessmen, but instead they went and donated their their lives to, you know, to volunteer for free at the headquarters in Rome. Mm. So I think that was the last final straw. All right. And and uh, so how how long were you uh, a, a Jehovah's Witness? So I um, up until twenty one basically. So I came back to, when I came back to Australia. It was just mum and I and, and my brothers and free because she was free of dad. She was able to really immerse herself and she she was a very a very devoted witness, um, possibly well extreme extremely so, and she. Um, encouraged us to be extremely devoted as well. So we were all, all my brothers, again, went to Bethel in Australia, Sydney, which is the headquarters, again, to volunteer their time. They were all pioneers, which is voluntary full-time. My mum was a pioneer. Most of my brothers, two out of three brothers, became elders. One became, he's a missionary at the moment in China. So there there was an all-in um, effort from mum. I think because she'd been stopped for so long by dad mm. that she really immersed herself. And, and, and it was a, a crutch as well, of course. She found her fulfilment in it and she insisted that we were all going to find it as well. So, yeah. Did, did you ever? Did I ever pioneer? Yeah, I mean, did, did you ever feel fulfilled or for fulfilment as a witness? Oh, this is the funny thing. When you're in it, yeah. you really believe it's wonderful. So if, if you asked me when I was in, I would tell you that I had a fantastic upbringing, yeah. that my father was unreasonable and violent, and that really I had a wonderful life um, because I had such a beautiful future to look forward to, and it was imminent. Any minute now I was going to live in idyllic conditions um, in a beautiful paradise with with the most beautiful house I would pick out for myself from all the billions of dead people that left theirs behind. <laughs> so, oh, you're going to have to explain uh, that. <laughs> oh, really? So yeah. The, oh, so the witnesses believe that there's an apocalypse coming in the form of Armageddon and so uh, only witnesses will survive. So that means because there's only 8 million witnesses, approximately 7 billion people minus 8 million will die and be strewn bodies all over the floor. We were told we'd have to be extremely strong. But as soon as all those bodies had decayed and we'd buried them, we would have um, all their leftovers. We could pillage all the... Um, wow. Those, 
Yeah. So we, we would go witnessing. I would go witnessing. This is terrible, but we all did it and we'd pick out the house that we were going to uh, inherit. <laughs> <laughs> so we, wow, so when that's cold. Go, when, when you would go door to door, you're like, this might be my door someday. Yeah, this, this one has a big screen TV also. <laughs> Mark this address down. I, I was oh. more into the gardens, so the ones with the big fancy gardens and the big, big houses, that's what I was looking for. But Is yeah. is there any is there any truth to the 144,000? Um yeah, that's that's a doctrinal belief that uh those that number will go to heaven. They will be okay. raptured to heaven. But the rest of the 8 million um will stay on earth. Okay. So in, in the Jehovah's Witnesses, did they, did, did they have, are there people who believe that they're part of that 144,000 and then there's a lower tier of the rest? Absolutely. So wow. when, yeah, when I grew up, there were in the congregation, we knew who they were because there was a, a ritual in, which is coming up actually in April called the Memorial. And so what they do is they all pass the bread and the wine and the ones who partake, you all have a good look and sneak around and you can see them popping the um, bread into their mouth and everybody then, wow, he's, um, he's going to heaven or she's going to heaven. She's been chosen. And how did they know? We always talked about how would they know? Well, they had a special message. They had their own special desire to go to heaven, whereas the rest of us were happy to stay back and take the houses. <laughs> Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so it's true. And so the, the, the 144,000 is a limited number. It, it, it included people like um, some of the old biblical characters, not all, but some of them. So by the time it comes to today, um, you know, there should be very few left, but apparently that number is increasing every year. <laughs> uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't add up in, in a way, but, um, yeah, that's the story behind that one. In my experience, though, people don't even think about the logistics of that stuff. I don't know if Jehovah's Witnesses are any different, but most of the people that I talk to when I ask them why they think their God is real, for example, um, and if we happen to get into the doctrine, it doesn't seem like they've really given a lot of thought as to the mechanics of how it works. It's an afterthought. Yeah, I'm going to die if I believe this and I'll go to heaven, but they don't think about the logistics of it and and how the pieces fall together but is is that any is that different in the jehovah's witnesses i'm actually a little curious i don't talk to a whole bunch of jehovah's witnesses no i think you're spot on if i can describe when i was growing up that really happy state of this amazing future we were looking for it puts you like in sort of a trance and because our activities were so planned, um, so Jehovah's Witnesses' schedule is incredible. Um, basically, six out of the seven days, you're doing an activity that could take between two and three hours. So because you're so immersed and you're so busy, you don't have time to stop and reflect. You're so It's designed to be so um, laborious that you don't, yeah, you're like in a trance. That's how I can describe it. It was like I was a robot. So I had no time to stop and think. A plus the added benefit that they frightened us into, um, you know, not letting our minds stray. So they actually had terms for that, um, not to let your mind be influenced and, and, yeah, not to let your mind stray. So don't even think about it. It's dangerous to think. And then they would give examples. That person's left, oh, they must have gotten into independent thinking is what they called it. Wow. Isn't that funny that that, active that that action that activity is discouraged 
Don't let your mind stray. Don't start thinking. Don't start questioning. Don't start doubting. It's like exactly. the ultimate, ultimate form of control. And it's so powerful because even when I left at 21, I'm going to say this, it's very embarrassing. I actually did not begin independent thinking until two years ago. So I'm 43. So I reckon it took me until 41 before I could actually let go of that fear and actually say, you know, to start thinking for myself and allow, not, not to start thinking, but allow myself to go into that material that was so banned. We were so frightened of that material that I actually developed like a, like a fear, like a trauma. If I came across it, we immediately shut our minds down. So if we thought something or if, or if, I, if I stumbled on a website that immediately mentioned um, something negative, we would immediately, and we were trained, and I was very good at it. I did it for years, immediately shut down, immediately. So it's just incredible that our programming and our schedule and our routines were so cleverly designed to actually make me, once I left, continue that pattern for possibly 19 years. See, that's the, that was my follow-up question, which you sort of already answered, was how integral was the religion or the way of thinking part of your daily life? Because, you know, as Mormons, especially speaking for myself, I mean, it was a daily thing. I, I was constantly thinking about you know, or having prayers to God and stuff like that. But it sounds like it was a much more intrusive and much more of a controlling thing for you. And if only just two years ago, you're really starting to pull some of that hard wiring out of your brain. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, I told, so I totally agree with what you're saying. The, the thing is that it's so invasive. Intrusive is a great word. It's so invasive that it actually changes your lifestyle. So your choices are changed. So mm. we had, because Armageddon was imminent, it changed our opinion of what we would invest our time in. So there was no sense in investing time in careers or material gains. Even at school I knew, look, I'll just do what I have to to get by because wow. in a couple of years there, there will be no schools anymore will be on this paradise earth where there is no even any schools. So um, wow. Wow. it was extremely intrusive. And even my character, even my character was developed because I was uh, not permitted to um, talk or associate or get into conversations with people other than witnesses. So I became extremely insular. I was, um, I was really an outcast and I was teased. But the funny thing about the way we were brought up is we had this marvellous thing that no one else had. We had this marvellous future so that even if I was teased and, had an, you know, was an outcast, it was okay. I felt invincible. Right. I was invincible. Yeah. Did, you know, the, the, the name of the Mormon church is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and it's called Latter-day Saints because Mormons also have a belief in the, the millennium, they talk about it more as the millennium than as the apocalypse, but, you know, they're, they're interchangeable. And I, I, we have this long list of signs of the times that we would, you know, they would come up in, in classes and teaching all the time that you can see, you look around you and prove that it's, it's close. We're close to the end. We're in the latter days. I imagine that you must have something different because it, it was always the Mormon missionaries and the Jehovah's Witnesses who were like, 
competing yes. out, out, you know, for knocking yeah. on the doors and, and stuff. Um, what, what kind of, do you, did you have signs of the times? And what I'm really curious about is if there were times in your life where you felt like the, the, the second coming, the apocalypse was imminent and, um, then it passed and you had to kind of ask, well, no, it's going to be imminent in five years. I mean, did, did you have that kind of experience growing up? Okay, so you've um, addressed a couple of things there. I'll go yeah. back to the signs of the times. Yes, we called it the signs, sign of the last days. So okay. it's very simple. Yeah. Um, yeah, we had those signs, war, famine, pestilence, you know, or disease. Absolutely. And every time there was a news report, oh, this is it, this is it. Or yeah. there's a scripture that says um, when they say peace and security. And in 1986, they announced that the year of peace and security, UN announced it or something. That year we were sure it was coming because, because you know, that was fulfilling the scripture. Yeah, but, word for word. Yeah, word for word. Um, but... Um, what was your second point? So yes, um, that is. Yeah, you know, so so like like for for me, I I, I didn't really believe that the year two thousand was going to be when it all happened, but there were Mormons around me who did believe that, you know, or there were different. So were, were there times in history where uh, in history in your life when you would think, oh, it's coming, it's just around the corner. Absolutely. So I think this is part of the trauma of growing up in something like this is the consistent state of anxiety, yeah. um, which find themselves in, which is why I do most of my activism work is I worry about the kids. So they're in a consistent state of um, anxiousness awaiting any, any little sign. So for example, a storm or a, a media report or some statistic would continually bring it, okay, this could be it. So because we were so invested, my family was so invested, um, yes, every single day, and we carried on for years, but we used, they used this very clever um, design of doctrine that if you try to think what day it will be, well, then you're a fool because you're trying to think um, how do they use it, how do they explain it. You're trying to overstep God's right. plan. Yeah. So you, you're foolish if you're trying to set a date. So yeah. it, whenever people set dates or times, we were treated and put down, but every time we were reminded. Um, and the conventions, the yearly conventions, were a massive propaganda stunt. Every time I walked out of one of those, it was like, oh, it's so close now. They, they created this massive sense of urgency. Mm. So, yeah. Yes, as somebody totally invested and in living every breathing moment for it, absolutely, I totally believed it, and we just waited and waited. Well, I'm kind of wondering. I'm sorry. I was kind of wondering where the anxiety comes from. Like, if you really <laughs> think that you have this gift, is the anxiety the, the fear of what's going to happen to all these people around you, or the uh, the amount of work that's going to fall on your shoulders to clean up all the bodies or or something else what's where's the anxiety coming from if you think that you have this wonderful gift okay you're right probably anxiety is the wrong word a high state of alert alertness i should say possibly not anxiety you're right i'll take that back because really it is exciting even though even the prospect of everybody dying so i used to look at nasty people at school and think oh i can't wait because you you are soon going to die i wouldn't tell them that but I'd think it. And so, but it was a constant state of alertness. Maybe anxiety is the wrong word. You're right. Yeah. I, I had that thought too, Anthony. I, and I, I think that the anxiety, I, I, I think, I, I think it is a form of anxiety, Renee. And, and, um, 
even if it is excitement, but you're, you're wound up alertness. You're, you're like constantly looking for it. And that's got to take a toll on your nervous system. Just this always being stressed out and hyper aware. And could it be this time? No. Could it be this time? No. Oh, well, because it's all, there was also always reminders and boundaries of what we had to get done too. Yeah. So if you, uh, for example, my mum being so devout, she decided that um, the average Australian publisher hours, which is how much time they spend out in the field service witnessing, had to be the minimum benchmark we had to meet. So usually it used to be about 15 hours a, a week. So when I was a kid, if I didn't meet that 15 hours and I reported 10 or 12, I would have anxiety and say, I wonder if I would be saved because I didn't meet that benchmark. So right. there are um, a, an enormous amount of benchmarks wow. that you feel like you're never meeting. And these yeah. benchmarks are endless from what you listen to in music, what you watch on television, right. um, what you've said, what sins you've, you've um made or transgressed or whatever the expression is that that question of worthiness must always be there i mean i know it was for us too that you know so even if you're promised that you'll be able to inhabit the houses of all of the dead people you still never quite know if you're good enough to make the cut and there's always that little bit there too anyway you know what what i'd like to do at this point i'm going to share my screen so i think you can all see this what we're looking at right now renee is a post that you put up, you've got a Facebook group that's called JW Survivor. Um, and you posted this on Facebook on February 22nd, uh, which was just, just a little over a week ago. And uh, Anthony responded to it. And because Anthony responded to it, it showed up in my feed. And I looked at this and I read this and I thought the way that you express this in here, I, I mean, th- th- there's so many similarities to the way that I saw the world growing up as a Mormon. I just loved it. And so that's, that's why I reached out and said, Let, let's have this conversation. So what, I, what I'd like to do is, is each one of us maybe take a sentence or a paragraph and we'll just start reading through this and, and kind of take it piece by piece and ask questions. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll start because I, I, I want to talk about the army. Uh, so, so you say, Renee, just thinking out loud, we are the chosen soldiers, part of a large army, marching out together to save those in the world. Our job was life-saving and so critical. I was born for this mission and I was trained as early as I could talk through becoming a publisher, then a baptized person, then a pioneer. So I'm going to stop right there. And I want to talk about this image of a, of an army. And how, how did you experience that? Um, I think there is an incredible amount of camaraderie because we all spent so much time together doing uh, witnessing meetings and praying together. There's just this massive camaraderie that is built. Um, so that's why I thought of an army. And also the literature that we have uses a lot of um, diagrams of us always marching out together past the rubble that was Armageddon and all the dead bodies. So we always look like an army marching out from there. So it's a really, it's a really it's strong imagery in the sense that it makes you feel part of a very important mission, something that's been designed and it's critical and it's often life-saving. So that's why I use that imagery, yes. Yeah, and, and we had that too. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a movie that was made several years ago called God's Army, which was made by a, a Mormon guy um, about Mormon missionaries um, 
and the, that imagery is in the songs a lot. I mean, it comes right out of scripture, I think too. And in this idea of it's us against the world. Um, yeah. Um, crazy stuff. Anthony, you want to take the next section? Yeah, sure. There was a camaraderie and a sense of urgency. I had an army of angels behind me and my mission was of the highest order for the almighty being the most powerful. And then I quit. I turned in my badge and my uniform. I walked off the job. Yeah. yeah so yeah. And this one, I was also, uh, sorry, did you want me to go ahead or did you have a question? No, go uh, ahead. Yeah. I want to, oh, I want to hear more about this. Yeah. So this, this is that in I remember being so extremely arrogant um, where we had this greater knowledge and we had, you know, God behind us, the right God, because everybody else has got the wrong God. Um, and we had angels. Like my mum used to tell me, you know, when you're having a bad day at school, don't worry, if you're sitting alone, there's always going to be two angels sitting beside you. So I had, you know, these imaginary friends throughout a lot of my upbringing. So um, um, the mission was so critical and the sense of urgency that we've talked about, which puts you in a state of alertness. But then, but then I quit. That's right. Then I quit and I turned in my badge because doing that is um, exactly what it feels like. You're choosing to leave something that once upon a time was your entire mission, was something so uh, much bigger than everything. By the way, I, I wanted to say too about the arrogance about what we were like as an army. There was, there was this incredible you know, treatment of people that we treated people so poorly, I believe, I really regret how arrogant and self-righteous I was. And we were even trained from an early age to treat um, people who leave as dead. So we were trained to really cut off anybody else that wasn't part of it. So even as a kid, I, I remember my mum teaching me how not to look at somebody or, you know, to, to really believe that they were dead in our eyes. So when you quit, you are deciding to give up your commitment and your, and your contact because as soon as you quit, you are dead to them. So turning in this badge and walking off the job, although I've made it sound very easy here, it wasn't that easy. The transition no. was incredibly painful and difficult. But that's effectively what I did, especially now that I talk about it, is, um, you know, I've, I've definitely turned in my badge. Yeah, that's what's striking to me is, is in these few little words, you just mentioned how difficult it was. I mean, some people think that they'd rather die than to turn away or to, you know, quit their job and turn in their badge or whatever, because depending on how invested you really are, there's really no other options laid out, especially in what you're talking about, how extreme or how fundamental or literal of a belief this was. I mean, this sounds intense. Mm. Yeah, look, it's, um, I would call it, I'm going to say that the leaving and the transition was, like I said before, I, I believe it's taken 19 years. So, and possibly the last two years of awakening fully. So let's say it's taken me 22 years 
to, I know that math doesn't add up, but, you know, <laughs> it would take a month, <laughs> um, 22 years to, to hand in that badge. Yeah. I think it's taken me that long because it's such a difficult transition. And I can talk more about that if you like. Yeah, well, I, I think we'll get to it in a second. Tom, let, let's, let's get from like the in fact down to regret it okay here and then we can we can talk about this this section of like why what it was that made you leave in fact i found out the job was a hoax it was all fake there was no apocalypse coming and my marching had been repetitive and in vain my training had been simply training walking and walking for hours on end to a place that no one would find i turned away from my comrades they kept marching on oblivious they watched me walk away and denounced me. They told me I was wrong, that I would regret it. Wow. That's so painful. Yeah. Like, I, I, you know, I, all I can do is really pull from my own experience. And to me, like, I should not complain an iota in comparison. Because I do know that the shunning thing, especially, um, from just hearing just light stories from from JWs when they leave and the denouncing. I mean, yeah, I had a little bit of shunning for sure, but I feel like I, I, I can't even swim in the same pool with you guys. <laughs> this sounds awful. It does sound awful. And the, the whole turning in your badge and walking off the job metaphor. Well, I don't know if that is a metaphor. If you're being, if you really had a uniform and a badge, I don't know. Okay. You're nodding your head. No. So I was envisioning like a police officer who was tasked to, to monitor a jail and, and they were given a gun and given instructions only to find out that the gun has no bullets in it. There's not even a gun. There's nobody in the prisons. And you, you basically just spent all that time defending something that was not real. And I can only imagine, I can only imagine the anger that you might have felt, the embarrassment. I don't know, like I, probably every emotion that you could maybe think of, I would imagine went through your mind. I, I don't, yeah, I, I can't, that's, I'm really kind of hoping to get into that maybe here as far as like, what were you, what was going through your mind? What is going through your mind now? And how are you planning to deal with it? How are you dealing with this? Okay, so if it's okay, I think it's a good point to talk about that transition now because it did take a while and there's a few steps in it, if I may. So And, and, I, and if, if you can, I, I'm, I'm really interested what made you make the change. You know, like what, how did you recognize it was a hoax? How, how did you come to the recognition that there is no apocalypse? You know, what, what was that shift like? Because then you had to act on that. How did you come to the, that, that new understanding? Okay, so basically there's a few factors that I think helped me. I think the fact that my dad was a non-JW to begin with always played out in the back of my mind because don't forget my, my dad was going to be one of the dead ones that I was going to be helping bury. Right. So the fact that, that he was a JW parent and fought, non-JW parent and fought so hard, that had something subconsciously that affected me. Um, at 17 I started having... Um, a, a strange feeling. So I, I totally believe at this stage, but I was starting to have very strange feeling as I stood, as I um, stood in the meetings, I felt that the people that were speaking all of a sudden 
did not seem genuine. I could I could see something was I could feel something wasn't right. Um, there were other witnesses, so we had given up so much. We had sacrificed. There were other witnesses that were following material pursuits, were doing holidays, were behaving in a way as if it, the apocalypse wasn't close. So that really confused me. Why why was I working so hard? Did you and call they, them you Jack? Know, were, were did you call them Jack Dubs? No, I didn't. Why is that a term? Is it? No, we we call we call those people Jack Mormons, and so I was wondering if you, with the JW, call them Jack Dubs. I don't know. You have no. a name for people who aren't really towing the line. They're 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 not following the rules. They're do, observing the holidays. They're doing material oh, possessions, that sort of thing. Well, as soon as you said observing holidays, I mean that is serious. That is a disfellowshipping. That is an instant casting out. But the spiritually wow. weak is what we referred to the ones that weren't as active as the others. Mm. So um, because I didn't feel right, I actually became, I started becoming quite suicidal at 21 and um, I actually experienced um, anorexia when I was anorexia when I was 14 and I did some cutting at 15. All along there were signs that internally this didn't feel right. I, I knew I was going to get basically cast out. Um, it's hard to describe. So I'm still believing, but I just couldn't reconcile how I felt inside. Um, and I, there was just all this confusion. So I, I was cast out at 21. I was disfellowshipped for um, what they term uncleanness, which is minor acts of, um, anyway, I won't go into too much detail. But as soon as I got kicked out, I think that was the biggest shock and the biggest favour that I'm very grateful. So a lot of people who are disfellowshipped are very bitter. I'm actually really, really grateful. It's, I believe it took a long time, but it saved my life. So once I got um, disfellowshipped, I allowed myself to start reading science things. Again, I wouldn't allow myself to read anything against witnesses, but I would read about a lot of science things. I was particularly interested in evolution because the witnesses really tried to debunk that. And um, I found this incredible journey where I started understanding that science has so much power and there's so much to it. But I was still confused because I was still waiting for Armageddon to come. I still was so entrenched in that thought that I'm going to die any minute. So I had this divergent thinking happening at the same time. And I think that's what part of the identity crisis is, where you start to split into two people. That's, that's probably the best way to describe it. So I was maintaining this programmed Renee that, you know, kept waiting Armageddon and kept believing in Jehovah and then this other Renee was splitting off and starting to read and trying to understand the scientific point of view and whether there truly was a God and where we came from and yeah, I allowed to do those readings but again I didn't allow myself to think too deeply on it I just let it sort of sit in the, on the burner and that went on for 19 years and every storm I would uh, because I had kids in the end every storm I would rush to their side and think this is the end I want to be with them when we all die this is up to even four or five years ago mm. so incredible trauma mm. um, but then eventually two years ago I searched Facebook and I just thought I wonder if there's other people like me because really they train you to think that you're the only one who's defected everybody yeah. because they're so expert at cutting you off you have no contact with anybody who's out so I just did a little Facebook search and the, the whole world opened up when I found the thousands in the XJW community and it was just 
Well, that's just another story of what that was like. Sorry, but you might probably want to go on with the reading of the Yeah, well, well, let's just finish it up because I think it leads right into what Anthony wants to talk with you about, which is, so so the last thing you say here is, now I'm alone. The army is long gone. I can't even see the dust their footsteps raised. It's all quiet, or it's still and it's quiet. I look around and ask myself, what is it that I do now? What is my purpose? That's the yeah. ultimate cliffhanger right there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> How many responses did you end up getting to this, this post that you made? I'm curious. Um, I think this one reached about 4,000 people, probably about a couple of uh, hundred of comments or two, uh, 150. I can't remember. If mm-hmm. you scroll up, you should be able to see. But, yeah, it, it did strike a chord. And it's funny because I just – I was. do you know why I wrote it? I was watching my husband plant a tree, you know, and we have a beautiful garden. And he really cares for it and tends for it. And he planted a tree and he was just so peaceful and happy. And I looked at him and I said, I just thought to myself, this guy just loves being in his own skin. Planting a tree is the most fulfilling thing he can do. And why am I sitting here questioning who am I? What do I do? what, What is it that I do? That's what brought it on. And I went and, and yeah, I went and wrote it. Um, straight after that tree planting experience. Because <laughs> hmm. he was just so peaceful. He's just such a peacefully happy person internally. It's, it's just a totally different upbringing and a totally different purpose or, or an outlook of life, I think. Hmm. Yeah, when I read this, I was really tempted to, to like start giving you specific advice about the things that you can do. And I have to, I have to pull myself back from from doing that because there are some people who they found their way out they're they're spending all their time managing the difficulties of finding life again after the belief and the last thing on their mind is is getting involved in the community or helping other people or or that type of stuff they'd rather just forget it and move on and then there's anything else in between you know people that they spend the rest of their life helping other people so that's why when i responded i i think i said something like Assuming you are willing and able, or if you are willing and able, one thing that you consider doing is possibly giving back to other people who might be still stuck in that, in that religion, in those views. Oh, yeah. I guess I did say that. Um, if you are willing and able, your purpose could be helping the ones who are stuck in that mindset or have recently found their way out. Um, but again, like this is a question that only you can answer. You can solicit advice, you can get advice, and it's really up to you to decide. Um, And you don't actually have to decide right away either. You can take your time, decide what you want to do. If you want to just put it in, in, in the closet and never mess with it again, consider it a bad experience and move on or, or try to help other people or something else. It's your call. Well, Yeah, my first reaction when I first left, I was so ashamed that I'd been, because I I had been shamed, I'd been cast out, so I felt like the lowest of beings. So the first thing I did is hit it. For the 19 years I built up a career, I finished two degrees, I got a pretty successful career and, 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 and worked on all that and that's where I found myself two years ago, just still surrounded by friends and a new family from my husband's side but still so alone. And I did. Two years ago I said I I wanted to start my Facebook page and um, 
and 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 write a book about it to be honest to mm. express and write a book in a way that is not bitter but expresses to people just from a child so almost like a childish point of view I wrote this is how it felt to me inside at the time it felt lovely and wonderful but these were the repercussions later um that's I think it, yeah you were going to um possibly make suggestions as well well, I guess the, the biggest suggestion I would have is just do the thing that you want to do. Don't try to let anyone sway you and take your time in the process. And if you think that you're good at writing books and you think that you can write write a narrative that will resonate with other people, then that sounds like a great thing to do. Um, yeah. It's funny too, because you it sounds like you created a Facebook group uh, for folks and I ended up creating a Facebook group for folks um, regardless of their of what religion they escaped from or what religion they abandoned. And it is neat to see the conversations that happen in there, uh, the healing that can happen when people meet with others who were through, went through something similar. So it's cool that you started that group. So, okay. You're talking about a group. You were talking about a book. I mean, that's a lot in itself. Are you thinking that you need to go above and beyond that or what's going through your mind? I do, uh, I do feel frustrated with Facebook because I know it's a very limited audience and also I'm possibly uh, already preaching to the converted when you're in XJW groups. Um, so I do feel frustrated as, as if that's very limited. That's why I wanted to write a book that was an appeal to the wider audience and I'm getting somebody to uh, edit it or to look at it now and hopefully prepare it. So it is done, it's finished. Um, I, I do have... Uh, I spend a lot of time talking to people and helping people who, for example, I help in a group that's a secret group for uh, parents fighting custody for children that are uh, being separated. So there's, um, how do I explain this? So XJW kids begin to alienate their non-JW parents like I did because they're going to die soon anyway. You might as well start cutting them off now. So we help with uh, fighting custody battles to get that stop, you know, to stop that. Um so, um, yeah, look, I'm, I'm writing an article for an atheist uh, magazine. I've been asked to write that, which is fantastic. So I, I would like to write more because I do, it is a passion, and to express things without bitterness but just trying to just tell it as it is and, and possibly hit more to the emotive side like this post did so that people understand repercussions and the trauma, the impacts of trauma. That's such a journey. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that reaching out like you are, do you think that it's not just, I mean, I guess I'm asking how is it benefiting your journey and your healing process through this? Because it sounds like what you're saying is I want to be able to help those kids that are stuck in this, this extreme fundamentalist way of thinking. If I can prevent some of that suffering that I went through, I mean, because that's, I mean, that's ex- extremely commendable and admirable that you're doing that. Um, yes. Look, I, I'm also um, partnering with um, a, a, a person who's done a lot for the JW community who wrote the jwfacts.com website. We're creating, um, we're hoping to create a, um, a resource for even young kids, teens and, and, and ones that are almost ready to leave home but can't to escape or to understand the crisis they're going through. So there is a lot of work to do. Um, 
there's, yeah, it's, it's incredible how many people need help. Those who have left is one side of it. They need support and, and how to manage the, the impacts of trauma. And then there's those who they don't even understand. There's a whole world of witnesses that, that need to be, that need to be helped. That it's, you know, it's a very difficult territory to touch because they're so insular. So is your focus more people who have already started the process of leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses or uh, are you targeting people who are still in it, both? So um, at the moment I'm supporting people who have left and within it. So um, with Mm. my Facebook, my my Facebook page basically validates their story. So number one, a lot of witnesses aren't believed. The first thing I noticed when I left was, hey, the witnesses aren't that bad. They're just quirky, door-knocking people. So the first thing ex-witnesses need to hear is, yes, you have just been through one of the most traumatising experiences of your life and you are heard and my page is letting you be heard because that's number one is understanding where they're at. Um, The second thing is um, the impacts of trauma. So how, how do you manage and how do you cope with the impacts of trauma one, one of which is that crisis of identity. What do you do? And what about all the shame because you're so embarrassed and you're so ashamed that you struggle with your self-worth and, and you really believe um, you, you can't even accept um, commendation. You struggle at work because you have trouble making relationships. You, you haven't learned how to, how to connect with normal people. Because really, we were robots as witnesses. We weren't. We weren't usual. We had to smile all the time to pretend that we were the happiest people on earth. We would have to turn up to meetings smiling. It was just this massive facade. So there's so many. Um, that, to be honest, I'm, I'm probably doing too many projects at the moment. So one is the Facebook page. One is a YouTube video on helping with the impacts of trauma for people. The other is the project to help with the kids who are trying to come out. Um, I'm also helping the custody. I'm part of a suicide memorial page of people who have lost their lives because there's so many people committing suicide. Wow. Um, so I will, uh, yeah. And uh, ideally I need to leave that Facebook realm and go into, into other media. Um, you're not, you're not, we'll you're, not you're not burning yourself out. It sounds like, uh, are you doing things to take care of yourself <laughs> through this journey? Um, it's interesting because I do have a high pressure job as well. Um, so I do, I, it is difficult, but you know what, what is my purpose in life? I think since, you know, this is what I feel it is, even though it's hard to keep telling myself that is I have this opportunity. I've been given this story, this journey that I've lived through and I've had lots of years to reflect I've written it all out in a book, so I feel like I've gotten all my expressions and my understanding of how it all works fairly rounded out. And so now what is my purpose, I think, is to use this knowledge and this, this journey to help others. And um, that's, I think that's, what, that's how I can give back. And I think for now, while I'm helping others, um, that's going to have to be what my purpose is. Do you have a, a title for your book and a published date? I don't have a publisher. I'm looking for a publisher. So at the uh, moment, it's been written and it's sitting in an editor's uh, desk. He mm-hmm. goes through it and he's going to check whether it's viable for publishing. Um, it's very difficult to come up with a title. I've done about 20 titles. The, the <laughs> most recent title at the moment is uh, Dead to Us. Or Dead to Us. Dead to Us. Mm. Dead to us. Yeah. Um, the journey, you know, the, 
the life of growing up a Jehovah's Witness kid and then being rejected. Yeah. Well, let, let, let me know when, when it's ready to publish and, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll promote it here on this podcast. You know, as, as I've been listening to you <clears throat> and, and thinking about like my similar experiences, Tom's similar experiences with it, I, I feel like when you're a child and you're raised with this particular worldview, it does create these habits of mind. It, it, it creates these neural pathways. And if, you, if you're raised to think that you're part of an army that is out there to save the world, and that's the way that you get uh, recognition, that's the way that you get love, that's the way that you feel like you're worthy, there's all these things that reinforce that. It, it seems like then it's very helpful, maybe, to later in life go, okay, I carved out these neural pathways. I created these habits. I've rejected the water that once was flowing through those canals. I'm going to maybe redirect some of the canals if I can rewire my brain a little bit, but I got to get some water flowing in here. So I've got some meaning in my life again. That, that's what I hear in, in your Facebook post. You're saying, well, what can I do? I've, I've got this urge to be on the front lines fighting against injustice. That's just how I was molded. That's just how I was raised. Now the tables have been turned. I see the injustice as, you know, the, the organization that first planted those, those thoughts in me. Um, and so it sounds to me like you're doing it and it's, and the, I, I hope that it's bringing a lot of purpose and meaning to you as you're making these connections with people who are recognizing that they're, they're not, as alone as they thought that they were um, and that, that they have you and others to, to talk to. I, it sounds, it, that's, and, and I, I also really, I, I paid attention when you talked about how to do this without bitterness, without anger. Um, that sounds really ideal to me as well. So I just, wow, cool. Yeah. Like I said, it's, I, okay. I'm lucky. I'm lucky in a way to, um, to, have, uh, to have left for sure. So now we need to, yeah, use it to, to do something helpful for others for sure. I thought Tom raised a really good point there about the possibility of getting burnt out. Cause it does sound like you have a lot of things going on and, and when you get feedback from people, I'm sure, I'm sure you must get messages and emails from people who reach out to you that you've never met before who are thanking you for what you're doing. I would imagine, um, you are doing that. And that could be a huge motivator. So like maybe I wasn't planning on filming talks with people the next day, but I get a message saying your videos are changing the way that I talk to people. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a much more calm non-believer today because of your videos or whatever. And then I want to go out the next day and film more. Um, but it can, it can really wear a person down. Because um, you can only do so much and, and it could be really tempting to, to get so wrapped up in your work where it's hard to turn it off even when you're home or even if you're at work and you're still thinking about the activism that you want to do, it can, it can really wrap you up. So like what Tom was suggesting about making sure that you have some time to yourself where you're not in saving the world mode could be pretty beneficial for your mental health yes i will take that advice on board i guess you know i just i just it's very hard when you know there are so many people languishing and like you said they reach out to you and you do want to help them all and every time something happens you find a new avenue 
So something else, you know, for example, on Reddit, there's a whole heap of teens who are now writing in 14, 15, 16, who are saying, oh, my goodness, this is just crazy, but I, I need to get out. And, of course, they can't. So there's just new, it's like new markets <laughs> opening up of things that are needed. So it's, uh, yeah, but I, w- I will certainly cut down and think, not cut down, but just prioritise which things have the, the most impact, which people need the most urgent help, and then um, go from there. For what it's worth, one thing that I've been trying to do lately is to identify people who have the ability uh, and the desire to um, to try to spread awareness about what you know the street epistemology stuff that that I do or atheism in general. Where so maybe I won't go out and, and film a one-on-one encounter with somebody, but I'll spend time with somebody who's interested in doing that. Finding other people that you can bring up so that it's not just you and a select group of people, that you can be broadening out the number of people, the number of activists uh, that are out there who can reach those people, who can reach those teenagers, for example, who are for the very first time going to Reddit and looking around and typing it up on their phone or something and peeking a look and seeing, is there anyone else out there like me? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. There's, um, you know, there's other aspects to, you're you're right about it takes up a lot of your energy because at the moment, I'll give you an example, there's a couple of um, activists that are doing so much work legally, so they're working underground so that they don't don't get, um, well, you know, pinpointed by by Watchtower because Watchtower is very actively at the moment on, on, a, on a course of finding people who are speaking against them and actually shutting down their YouTubes and Facebook pages. So actually my page, because I use their um, diagrams, is under, is under um, threat of being shut down as well. Not that I've had, you know, received a message, but a lot of the people have. So there's a lot of legal underground work that's going on by this couple and they're spending their entire time and they're making incredible headway um, but it's it's just so difficult because I really want to support them financially and I need financial help to do this. There's, there's just so much work to do um, to because the, the main issue, as you know, is to teach people that religion is can be so dangerous and that's just a massive, a massive task to, to do that ultimately. That's what we're trying to do. Um, so that's what takes up so much of my energy as well as trying to, to think of how, you know, how this massive job can be done. There's a lot of people, what I'm saying is there's a lot of people out there working underground doing amazing things that are not recognised and, and I wish um, they had more financial gain as well, or support's not gain, sorry, support. Mm. That's a whole other topic. <laughs> I'm wondering, is there a formal 501c3 for ex-Jehovah's Witnesses? No, there isn't. Um, I know of um, an, a group that tried to do it, and apparently the loops and jumps to create it, it just takes such a long time and it's very difficult. There is a partnership through the Rationalist Society, I believe, of Australia, where we have... Um, the saysorry.org have managed to create a partnership where they are getting some funding through that nonprofit. But, um, yeah, mm. that's, that's the, um, 
that's the only one I know of. So no, I would answer the question with pretty much no. Okay. Does the, do the Mormons ex LDS have anything like that? Yes. It's called the open stories foundation. Oh, come on, man. (laughs) (laughs) No, we don't, we don't really have one. (laughs) So really maybe that's something that uh, we should all, there you go. There's another project. (laughs) Well, I'm thinking the, the ex Muslims of North America, I think have a 501 C three and we're actually planning one for our, for our, our, uh, activities that we're doing because there are so many people that want to help ex-Muslims and people have better conversations, but they would never think about doing it or they can't, like you said, they're stuck in a career where they just, they have to lay low, but they want to help out. And if there was some formal organization out there where they can send you 50 bucks, you know, and you, there was, there's some transparency and there was an organization to, to redirect the support from people um, who have some financial abilities to back the folks like yourself and others to really make a difference for the people who are still in it and the people who have left it too, or who are looking for support. Yeah. I mean, there really is a, a 501 C3, a nonprofit organization called the open stories foundation. Um, that, that is the next Mormon group that does that sort of thing. I mean, Tom's might be smirking a little bit. It's, it's a, a, lot, a lot of it, a lot of it, but that's their mission, right? They're it. That, that is an ex-Mormon group that does it. it it's it's mm. main product, you might say, is the Mormon Stories podcast with John DeLynn, but that's what the nonprofit is there for, and, and they've got board members, and they focus on that sort of thing. So well, it's, it's possible like, to do. It's just like most religions where there's former people that have left, even like Scientology or JWs or ex-Catholics that have these little splinter groups and communities that go out and they have these little groups. Most of it's online, right? Where you find little groups on Reddit or Facebook. And, but I don't know, it seems like it's such a transitional phase for people that a lot of people don't stay in it to, to really help. And most people just are the money that I would donate to this. I'll just invest into therapy. I'll just do that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've, I've worked with a few people on volunteer projects and it's uh, it's not too hard to find people who express an interest in helping you, but it is really challenging in actually getting the people to to stay and help you for a decent amount of time. Yeah, right, right. And yeah, the turnover is quite high. I don't know, maybe just because there's no there's little investment there, or or uh, they lose interest, or I'm not sure what drives that, but yeah, it could be challenging with volunteers. Well, I think the the challenge of any any group like that is, you know, you you said something earlier, Renee, about how damaging religion is, and I, I think the most damaging thing about religion is the dogma that that forms. And and when when we we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago, Tom and I and a few others on the podcast, where we reviewed a Sam Harris Jordan Peterson conversation, where they were talking about the role of dogma, and. and you know, when, when you shut down the ability for free thinking and inquiry and there's punishments for people who go against whatever the, the party line is, you know, like th- th- those are the real problems. And, and when you've got people that were raised in a very dogmatic uh, religious uh, background and then they go start something new, that there's a tendency I've seen for that kind of dogmatic thinking to follow, even if it's in a secular environment and they say, we're, we're in a, we're against mm-hmm. religion, but you still get really dogmatic <laughs> and you draw like these political lines and, you know, Oh yeah. Just because we don't believe there. in any higher powers, there's still going to be yeah. that type of infighting and 
disagreement. That's that's just that's a human thing that's going to follow us. Organized shunning, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, things that things that happen there. Um, yeah, but yeah, you know, so doing doing what you're doing sounds sounds great, Renee. Yeah, I was going to say I think too with um, the way that um, XJWs react, or maybe any and even ex Mormons, a lot about bringing in programming really did stunt our ability to grow as adolescents if you were born into it. So when these people do leave, it is no wonder that they cannot manage and there's a lot of issues in XJW sites and I'm sure there is in ex-Mormons because without being harsh and, and, I, and I love them and I'm the same is we we have like an, um, an underdeveloped sense of emotional intelligence when it comes to relationships because of, of how controlled and programmed we are, we, we did not explore that on our own. So it is going to happen that when they leave, they're not going to manage things as, you know, as best because of that, that trauma they carry. Yeah, well, that would make sense too because if you were under the impression that, hey, if this person rubbed me the wrong way, I don't need to spend any time dealing with it. They're going to get their just desserts later on when Armageddon comes. So wet my hands clean of those folks and move yeah. on. So I could see how that would be a skill that most Jehovah, some Jehovah's Witnesses, most, I don't know, would probably not be able to develop because they're just disposing of these relationships. And you really can't do that. You, you, you need to learn how to deal with people and maintain relationships with people that you don't always agree with. And, and, yeah. and how, how to engage with, with conflict in healthy ways yeah. to resolve the conflict instead mm. of just avoiding it and saying, oh, conflict is of the devil. And, and you know, not only just... that, being forced into a group of, of very strange individuals that come together and all have to behave as if they love each other unconditionally. Right. So it's not that you would normally choose to make friends with, but because you're thrown together in the mix, you're forced to be disingenuous really with the relationships that you make so it's all really a facade it's a facade of people who are not being themselves Mm. and constantly rewarded for being disingenuous and and the having disingenuous behavior reinforced as the ideal and yeah it's it's uh you know what i'm wondering though if you had parents and they're raising kids they're jehovah's witness witnesses they're raising kids you can't just discard those relationships you have to do something so this might be a stereotype or a generalization, but I am wondering how do JWs typically deal with kids who are misbehaving? You can't just ignore them and, and, cut and sever the relationship. You have to deal with it somehow. Well, it depends on what the misgivings are. So if I'll break one of the major codes, yes, they are out. We've had on Reddit kids as young as 16 being thrown out of home because they, they did transgress one of the major codes. So, look, there's a very high incidence of violence as well, which is reported. Um, the witnesses' uh, view of disciplining children is very well catalogued in their literature as using extreme forms of violence. So they are, there is that side to it as well, which we haven't even tapped into, um, of, of children being forced by violent means to live in a certain way. And if not violence, I'm not saying all parents would because some parents I'm sure wouldn't agree with it and, and wouldn't do so. You know, definitely the mental, the mental um, abuse that's happening with the propaganda. I mean, you only need to see it. And it's in, this is what's so challenging and frustrating is the propaganda is out there in broad daylight. If you could see what the children are being exposed to 
on a daily basis from this organisation. If only, if only governmental authorities could see it, it's just mind-boggling why it's perpetuating when it's so it's it's operating in plain daylight and it's just it's just abhorrent. That's the, that's the challenge is how to get that you know that propaganda out in the light and exposed so that some governmental authority can say this is enough this is inappropriate for children are you optimistic at all that i don't know with with the way the internet and the information age is now that there's i don't know the jw church itself is going to continue to hemorrhage because i mean there's a lot of speculation in ex-mormon groups that the mormon church is starting to constrict and you know they're that most of the youth or the young generation um, are becoming nuns, N-O-N-E-S, you know, where they, they don't really subscribe to a literal or a fundamental way of thinking at all, at all anymore. As I was just wondering if in other religions they are experiencing the same or similar things. This is what's so exciting about the, these times. So there has been a massive impact. The exodus is extreme. So, yes, I'm optimistic because this is great. The internet has done us the biggest favour and um, that's why um, we want to create this um, resource for kids leaving because before before kids would never have had access. Now they're, they're maturing at 14 and 15 and being able to think critically and say, hang on, this is not right. So, yes, it's, I'm extremely optimistic. It's the best, the best thing that is happening. So will it hemorrhage entirely? I don't think so because there will always be a core um, of believers, you know, the diehards that will always that will always believe. Um, but um, you know, it certainly will slow it down for sure. And yeah, my main concern is helping the kids, the kids out. I think that's the most critical thing because the majority of witnesses, um, they and they don't realise this. They're not um, converted from door to door. The majority of witnesses are bred. So if if we can stem the breeding, not the breeding obviously, but if we can stem <laughs> or help the kids, <laughs> if we can help the kids uh, not be exposed to the propaganda that gets them in this perpetuating situation, that's obviously ideal. And of course, the internet is is wonderful for that, but it needs to go even younger to the ages of three and four and five where, where it all begins. Mm. Yeah. The, the, the fight is to try and get governmental authorities to see. I mean, there's even been reports where, where somebody made a report of the JW literature. It was something like 78% was viewed as extreme and, you know, I, I can't quote you. I, I'm happy to look for that quote for you later, but um, the, it, it's known, it's a fact, but yet it still operates in broad daylight. That's the frustrating thing as somebody who's trying to help people. Yeah, it's curious as to why they turn a blind eye to it. Or I don't, you know, the conspiracy theory in me or the conspiracy theorist in me thinks that maybe there's money being funded to put on a blind eye. I don't know. It's weird though. I mean, it could just very well be our, be our constitution. Our constitution allows the free exercise of religion. It's a religion and government wants to stay far away from it, which makes me wonder if there are different countries, different governments, maybe that might be a little bit more open to the idea of investigating the JWs 
So let's say that there's another country that does this great investigation and reveals all this abuse. Maybe that's what it would take for a more closed or, or a government like the United States, which gives um, holds religions in high regards generally, gives them right. gives Actually, them space. It's interesting you're saying that because right now Finland has put in um, a law. Well, not a law. I have to be careful how I word this, but they've they've stopped the ability of witnesses showing the propaganda to children because at convention there's a massive convention. There's lots of children there. So what they've done through their tele the television rights, they've made it illegal to show propaganda through those mediums. So Finland, I know what you're saying, Finland has already started talking about what is appropriate material for children and has gone as far as, um, you know, um, putting that into legislation for, for the viewing of, you know, that material in conventions. So I'll have to research more about that, but that's definitely something that's happening at the moment. You know, you get two or three countries that are investigating the JW church then organization. Is it a church? I don't know if I'm using the right terminology. But if you get enough different countries besides the United States looking into it, it might be what it what it would take to uh to get some real change, perhaps. Yeah. Or at least an investigation of some sort. Yes, it's basically getting the attention. I, I post things on some atheist websites too, and they come back to me. They're, they're, they're humorous. You know, why are you belly aching about this? We've got Muslims who are losing their lives whenever they change, you know. So why there's only 8 million witnesses. We're talking about, you know, situations that are far worse. So maybe it's as simple as that, that, you know, it's not viewed as big enough an issue. Yeah, well, that's that's a terrible argument because there's lots of extreme and fundamentals, fundamentalism everywhere that's problematic. Scientology, Mormonism, JWs, I mean, Muslims, I mean, they're everywhere. It's like you can't compare and contrast. It's like we probably just need to really attack fundamentalism at its roots with, with everyone. If, if there's abuse, if there's harm that's being caused, like you said, let's go after that in a general sense. Go <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm being, I'm being myopic. I know, but whatever. Well, no, you just made me realise maybe it's something that needs to be tackled in schools. Maybe it's an education program through schools. Yeah, oh, that's an excellent. That's, that's another avenue. Yeah, mm. most definitely. Just like they go, you know, through the risks of financial harm if you're not careful. They could go through the risks of being um, duped by something that's that's not um, founded on on reason. All right. <clears throat> well, well, I know you needed to end about this time, Renee. Is there anything you want to say in closing? Look, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have me on here today. Um, and and uh, I hope that, that it raises awareness of, of the situation and uh, the, the, the advancement in this area, as I'm sure it will occur as as we um yeah as the internet is used to um to make people aware it's yeah. exciting times i think it's great it is it is well thank thank you very much for coming on uh, anthony tom any any last comments from you either no, renee it was really good to hear from you I, your story is incredible and there's no doubt in my mind that it's going to have uh, 
a very beneficial impact on people out there, not just JWs or XJWs, but even for myself, you know, sort of dealing with former PTSD or whatever from Mormonism. Um, I just, I think that you should be applauded for your, you know, your ability to put yourself out there and share these stories. So thank you. Can I say okay. amen? Is that an, a, yeah. amen? Is that an okay word? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. And um, Tom, you might be interested in um, the YouTube work I'm doing with a counselor at the moment where we're attacking, not attacking, but dealing with all the impacts of trauma like shame and loneliness and loss of identity. Um, we're, ex we're exploring those through telling our stories. So that might be something that you might like to have a look at as well. It, Absolutely. It's, it's definitely non-denominational. You know, like you said, it goes across all JWs, Mormons, and there's so many out there that, that have had the similar journeys and stories. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Last words, Anthony. Well, the last words I suppose is, uh, I'm really glad that you made that post. I didn't even realize that I was in that group. So I want to thank the person that invited me to that group and I'm glad that it crossed my feed and I made a comment on it. And then Glenn, of course you were able to see it. You know, I think writing about your, well, reading about your experiences, reading about other people's experiences, I think could be really helpful. Writing about your own probably is, is helpful and maybe even reaching out to somebody privately. Um, there's nothing wrong with creating a Twitter account and reaching out to, to somebody who has left the religion that you're a part of and you need somebody to talk to. If you just need a little bit of a one-on-one, -on -one, that person is probably thrilled that you reach out, uh, reached out to them for help. And they're probably willing to give you a little bit of time. If you, if you need that one-on-one, -on -one, if you're not really crazy about creating a Facebook or getting on exposing your friends to the Facebook group by, by joining something and you want that private, that private one-on-one, um, -on -one, I, I suppose you can probably try reaching out to somebody and you might be surprised. They'd probably be very helpful to you. Thank you. All right. Thanks everyone. Thanks for Thank you. G'day. This is Matthew Bride from Brisbane, Australia. I'm an unbelieving Mormon and I love Game on Thrones. This stuff on the Mormon church is great, but I really hope you guys do some episodes with dragons soon. Winter is coming. Wait, what? This isn't Game of Thrones? Bugger. That explains the no dragons. Okay, well, you two can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Anyone? Anyone? This is Infants on Game of Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with dragons. We are the soul of